If you haven't yet heard, John Mark is launching a new ministry this fall called Practicing the Way. Dallas Willard once noted that one of the greatest needs for the church was the development of a curriculum for Christlikeness, and John Mark is setting out to respond to this need. So through Practicing the Way, John Mark will create beautiful spiritual formation resources and experiences to help you and your church be with Jesus, become like Him, and do what He did. Now, Practicing the Way will officially launch this coming fall, but in the meantime, here are some key ways you can get involved. First, you can consider joining the circle of generous partners who will make it possible to give away all of these resources for free. Second, if you're a church or small group leader, you can become a pilot church today to help provide unique feedback as we continue to refine these resources in order to serve as many people as possible. This is a ministry in the church and for the church, so we would love for you to get involved. To partner with John Mark and Practicing the Way in either of those ways or just to find out more, head to practicingtheway.org and you'll find everything you're looking for. That's practicingtheway.org. Okay, enjoy today's episode on the Live No Lies podcast. Don't really be in covenant with people who voted differently than you, who might even say stuff that's really painful and be really ignorant, because, you know, it's not my responsibility to teach these uneducated folk. That's not Christ-like. I believe here as believers, we've, we've lost the way of love, or, or we've not known it. Hey friends, welcome to episode two of Live No Lies, a new podcast where I interview leading Christian intellectuals that I quote in my most recent book, but I just kind of quote in passing. Here we get to do a deep dive with these thought leaders who have done so much to shape the way that I view reality, and I want them to do the same for you. We are so happy to have you along. Today's guest for episode two is a friend of mine and a a mentor to me and a hero of mine. His name is JT Thomas or Jonathan Tremaine Thomas. You may know of him, you may not. He is not a celebrity per se, but I think he is not just a thought leader, but a leader leader that God has raised up for such a time as this in the language of the Old Testament. He is the founder and CEO of Civil Righteousness. They are doing absolutely fascinating work in Ferguson, Missouri and around the world, even here in Portland. He's also well known as an artist and activist and pastor and preacher and producer and he comes from this long legacy both of faith and of the civil rights movement. His aunt was Nina Simone, the high priestess of soul so-called, just a fascinating character. And honestly, I know this man, not just like over the internet. I know this man in person. He's been in my home. He's been in my life. He's been with our leadership team. And he is one of the most Christ-like people I know. I can't wait for you to experience this conversation with JT Thomas. Thomas. 
before we start this conversation, I just want to say thank you again to our partners at World Vision who made this podcast possible. And I want to tell you about a new resource they have available for you. If you are a pastor, it's open to anybody, it's on the internet, but in particular for pastors and priests and spiritual leaders. It's called Soul Care Prayer Rhythms. It's a free digital resource with teaching from Danielle Strickland, as well as practices for you as a pastor or priest or spiritual leader to kind of let God care for your soul. A lot of us coming out of 2020 and 2021 and all the political polarization in North America and beyond, all of the outrage on the internet, the pain and trauma of leading a church through COVID, a lot of us are feeling not just tired but wounded at some level and we need to attend to those wounds so that we transform them and not transmit our pain and we let those wounds become sacred wounds. There's no three-step formula or killer app to that end, but this new resource, Soul Care Prayer Rhythms, is a great step in the right direction. I can't recommend it enough. You can check it out at worldvision.org slash live no lies, or just click on the link in the show notes. Enjoy our conversation. Well, JT, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. I so enjoy conversation with you and you're such a gift to me and to, I think, the church at large all over. For those of you that are joining and listening along and don't know JT Thomas or Jonathan Tremaine Thomas, you're a bit of a hero of mine. You, you are a really hard man to introduce <laughs> because you've done so many interesting things. You worked as an actor in the entertainment industry, you've worked as an entrepreneur, and you've started all sorts of fascinating things and so many like offline stories about you. Um, I know you as the founder of Civil Righteousness. And so as I understand the story, uh, in 2014 with the killing of Mike Brown in Ferguson, you moved there with your family, literally moved to the place of pain. I think of, uh, there's a theologian I love, N.T. Wright, who writes about how the church's vocation is to be in prayer at, where the, at the place where the world is in deep pain. Yeah. And you, know, you moved your body into like a, a body-based kind of prayer. And that moment in 2014 was very much the place of pain for our nation. You, sure. know? you moved there, you found this organization, Civil Righteousness, doing fascinating work in the space of justice and righteousness. Yes. And I know you have a lot of thoughts about how those two things need to go together, and I'd love to hear you maybe riff on that. But since then, a lot has happened, um, yes. in particular, the killing of George Floyd. So what, what has that journey been like? I know that's opened up. Wow. How has that impacted you and the work that you do? You've been on the ground you know, in Ferguson for sure. years, and then George Floyd, and then 2020, and then here we are. How's that impacted you? Yeah, you know, the, the Floyd moment in our history has impacted me personally in deep ways um, because I, I saw a measure of and felt and experienced a measure of trauma um, I, with every loss of life over the last seven years, right? Yes. Since Mike Brown, the loss of any black life and the loss of any life in general is is crushing. Um, but I think that the level of, of shock and horror that the collective uh, of America felt in watching that nine minute and 29 second video right. 
and seeing the life snuffed out of Floyd, it I felt the pain of I felt like of hundreds of years of of injustice embodied in that nine minutes. When I saw the video, personally, I felt like I could feel that I was crying the tears of every ancestor of mine who had ever been wronged and unheard or hurt at the pain uh, of the knee, so to speak, of the American justice system. Um, So there was an embodiment, there was almost like a, a physical manifestation of the entire uh, African uh, diaspora's yes. experience, American experience, in that one moment. Yes. And multi generational trauma. Oh, I, I'm I'm almost starting to feel it now as I'm even, as we're yeah, saying this. I'm sorry. Um. And so the level. The. It's hard to describe um, the level of of sorrow and and what it touches at a DNA level. Some yeah. there's there are studies coming out about epigenetics, yes, epigenetics, you know, yes, epigenetic trauma. You literally carry that trauma in your right. genetic code. And so that moment um, touched the epigenet at the epigenetic yes. level. But I think for the first time, it also touch people who don't carry those genes. Right. So it was an awakening moment, I believe, for all of America um, that required, it clearly required a response. Um, and the response for me, even knowing Jesus and, and having a history of being able to, um, at some level, surrender my emotional state to God and find peace, it took a while for me to get to that place. Yes. So it was only natural to see the what the the cultural response was, which was absolute outrage, and and rage always requires a place of expression, hmm. and so rage fills the streets, and um, within that, my own city, Ferguson, which. Uh, has been touched by rage. I always say renovated by rage several times since Mike Brown. Hmm. Um, anytime uh, a police and civilian encounter happens that is perceived to be unjust, Ferguson has become kind of like a, a go-to place to express rage. Um, even though we've also been a city that because of what happened with Mike Brown, we've worked very, diligently and had years worth of uh, challenging confrontations and conversations. I would say the previous mayor, we have a a black female who's the mayor now, which is amazing, but the previous mayor uh, was probably the most tested and confronted white mayor in America for for a number of years Hmm. um, because the level of hostility, uh, the amount of engagement that took place in Ferguson the amount of reforms that took place and are taking place among police. There's a black chief of police there now who uh, was brought in from Atlanta. He got into policing because of his own experiences with with uh, police as an African-American. And he says, hey, I wanna become a police officer to make things better. Um, 
the level of reform and work that we've done on the ground in Ferguson um, would cause you to think that Ferguson would not necessarily experience the blunt end of rage today. Right. But um, but we have. You're saying because a lot has happened. Because a lot has happened. Yes, and yeah. a lot of the work that you have done has you've actually yeah. gained ground. Yes, but but what? But there's still rage. But there's rage, and so it becomes. If anything happens in any city, it becomes, well, let's go to Ferguson and protest. <laughs> you know, let's go to Ferguson because we're kind of like the yes. OGs, the original, the originators of of modern conversation on police brutality. Um, so that in and of itself is traumatizing, and yes. it re-traumatizes our city. And on on top of that, any city that experienced rioting, not protest, but rioting. Um, I know from lived experience, there's a there's a, a whole new level of trauma that gets added to the city that complicates and actually hinders forward progress and healing. Interesting. And so I knew that when Floyd happened, I had a responsibility within the measure that that uh, or the grace that I've been given a steward for us to, as an organization, civil righteousness, to uh, begin to not only help other cities that were experiencing the Ferguson effect for the first time, um, as uh, those cities were reaching out to us, but also helicopters were flying over the city of Ferguson Mm -hmm. five, six, seven, 10 nights in a row, and nobody was sleeping anyway because of the unrest on the street. And so, we began to engage on the street in the work of um, peacemaking and knowing that there's, there's the, the, the peacemaking moments not to silence people's voices, but to take a stand, a righteous stand when it moves from a cathartic, uh, peaceful protest moment into an anarchistic, mm-hmm. destructive rage expression moment um, that may or may not, in most time, in most of the time, it's not even connected to the pain of black people. It's just connected to the 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 nature of people's rebellion at the heart level, like at the human heart level. And so, um, in response to Floyd, our organization almost overnight exponentially mobilized or or multiplied as we felt a responsibility to challenge the church not to sit back and watch what's happening on the news, but that not only do we have an opportunity, but we have a command and a responsibility before God to be present in the midst of the pain and in the midst of the crisis as peacemakers and as those who carry the ministry of reconciliation. So, you know, you're based in Ferguson, but you do work all over, including right now, we're filming this in Portland. Yeah. And you've been doing it here with us the last few days, but all over from Baltimore to, I mean, pretty Kenosha everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, talk to me about the pattern that you see that often follows a tragic example of police brutality or the killing of a black body. Talk to me about the progression that you often see that goes forward from that, that you're trying to arrest through prayerful peacemaking in your language. Yeah. Well, I think, I think when we talk about, and when we think about the, 
the the purpose of protest is ultimately to um to confront and bring attention to that which has been hidden or that or to put front and center that which people don't want to embrace talk about look at or address um and so protest or or uh, direct action, as a lot of circles call it, is to part of the, the goal is to disrupt and to um, to force the addressing of certain issues. The challenge is that in the midst of those who are disrupting with good intention, and turning over tables to get to the table, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is that in the turning over tables, there are always, um, from from what I've experienced in Ferguson to cities around the country, there are uh, those groups of people or special interest organizations who embed within to turn over tables, not for the sake of creating a, a table that is empathetic or sympathetic to the advancement or the progress of black lives, but more to advance whatever their agenda may be. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you have that element going on. And then you just have straight up uh, criminals who, who, who seize the moment and seize the opportunity to get a new pair of shoes or, or beauty supplies out of the store that's being looted. You know, they're not connected to any greater cause or or any agenda. And as a, the, the challenge is that all of those things get wrapped into one thing in the mind of some folks. Yes. And that then hinders any any progression towards tangible change at the tables of power that you, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It, it complicates public perception of black people. Uh, of marginalized groups of people and it creates fresh trauma. So now you're not only traumatized from the loss of life, the horrible loss of George Floyd, but now the response to that traumatic event has now created a whole new trauma for peeps of, for groups of people who may not have been traumatized before. Yes. Business owners, police. I believe a lot of the police shootings are happening are happening out of a place of trauma within police officers themselves. So that's a whole nother that's a that's a different conversation. But the reality is that that opens up portals when we when we speak spiritually, you know, every trauma, there's a spiritual consequence you know, first what happens in the natural, then in the spirit. So there are, mm-hmm. there are spiritual dynamics and dimensions um, that, are in, that are attached to this. So we've seen rage, action, public action that's motivated by rage and fueled by anger and even fueled by sorrow. Um, there, there's a spirit, there's a spiritual dimension. Ra- rage is actually a spirit. And so... I've seen a pattern in cities of cities that have experienced 
these flashpoint moments that were followed by protests, that were followed by riots, almost, and I, I don't know if you can track it statistically and not find one of those cities where the homicide rate has not increased exponentially. On the other side. On the other side. Certainly true. Our homicide rate right now is literally the highest it's ever been after historic lows leading after, up to 2020. After historic lows, um, St. Louis is leading the nation in homicide rates. Um, and if we were to do a, a comprehensive study, I haven't done that, but I would... I would not be shocked to see if that has been the trend in every single city where there has been any measure of sustained so, so you're you're saying, let me hear, see if I'm tracking with you. You're saying there's some kind of a traumatic event, George Floyd or whatever, followed by protests, followed by people with other ideological or political or whatever agendas kind of piggyback off that and co-opt it for their own end, followed by riots, and rage resulting in increased death and mayhem in a city. Is that, is, am I Absolutely. hearing you right? Absolutely. And then are you saying like, where is, if we can think about that through the natural lens of sociological kind of trends, but where's the enemy at work? Like, you know what I mean? Where, where at a spiritual level, where is the enemy animating, looking for a window or a portal into a city or a people? Well, it's interesting if we were to look at um, the book of Ephesians and particularly uh, chapter four, uh, there's the passage that, that says, be angry, but in your anger, do not... Uh, be angry. That's interesting. It says to be like, angry. Get mad. There's a place for there's anger. There's a place. There's a, there's a kind of anger that you see in yeah. Jesus at the temple. You know? I, think, I think he even allows... So there's righteous indignation. Um, and I think... I, this, this could be controversial, but I think God allows for a moment of unrighteous indignation, hmm. meaning that, um, well, maybe not. No, I'll, I'll, I'll correct that. <laughs> when I say that, I mean, he says, be angry, but do not sin. So that right. would be righteousness. Righteous be angry, but do, in your anger, do not in sin. In your anger, do not sin. But I, I, here's the concession. He says, also, don't, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't let it. Interesting. And so, do you think that's referring even to the righteous indignation yeah, that, kind of anger? That's where I was going to hit on. Maybe he allows a window of unrighteous because he's going, don't let the sun go down. So if the sun is shining for 12 hours, it's almost like he's going, you have 12 hours to be as angry as you want to be, but that's it. Hmm. And while you're as angry as you don't, as you want to be, don't transgress. Don't, don't go out and kill anybody. Don't go, don't violate the image of God. Yeah. You know, don't do that. Un he says, lest, if you allow the anger to, to exist longer than that, it says, lest Satan get a foothold. Wow. In other words, there is a, there, there are, Satan himself is wanting you to hold on to your anger so that he can he has a legal mm -hmm. a right to access your life and to feed you with lies and to seed to seed iniquity at the heart level that then can can become can be watered as you surround yourself in with with echo chambers that articulate that seed that's in your heart as you watch the news 
as you read the, 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 the tweets and the posts and the articles that are articulating the anger that you feel. It's, gonna, it's watering a seed in you that is going to produce violent, a violent spirit inside of you. Hmm. And, and that foothold is the thing that in the right environment causes you out of anger to say, I'm going to go to downtown Portland and stand in solidarity. Um, and I'm not going to protest. I, I mean, I'm not going to riot. Right. I would never do that. I'm a nice person. But you're in that environment and you get so emotional because that bitter root is on the inside of you. And now you're surrounded by hundreds or maybe thousands who feel the exact same way as you do. And the overwhelming spirit of the atmosphere lays hold of what's inside of you. And then one person is, is articulate. It's a build articulating what you feel in your emotions. And that's where suddenly it's like somebody next to you, just in a moment of passion, uh, picks up a rock and throws it and you feel like throwing a rock too. And so you pick one up and you throw it and you're just the housewife, the mother of two kids. Mm. You don't, you have no criminal record. You never would do something like that. You never imagined that you were going there to do that, but somebody does it. And next thing you know, you're doing it too in a fit of passion and emotion and the spirit of rage Satan has You're now opening yourself up to something. You've yours, opened or yourself up or someone and in blind rage, suddenly you're the one sitting in jail and you had no idea why suddenly you in a fit of passion. I mean, we hear these passion crimes all the time, right? right. The loving husband and, and the, the, the family who were the, the most loving childcare servants in, in the local church. And nobody ever anticipated that the husband would, would, would kill the wife and, and kill himself. Everybody's perplexed that this happened. Blind rage. Or maybe he kills the wife and he survives and he says, I, I just went blank. I don't know what happened. Over and over, you can research these things. Happen. I just went blank. I, I, we were arguing. The next thing you know, I was standing over her. I don't know how it happened. Hmm. It's demonic. You know, I was, um, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I was recently, and this is, this is maybe too much information for some of the listeners, but was involved at a pastoral level with um, a case or whatever you wanna call it, where we were pretty sure that there was an individual who was demonized. Mm -hmm. And so we were preparing like some kind of deliverance prayer session to God willing deliver this person from some kind of demonic overpowering. Mm -hmm. And so I called up kind of a, a friend of mine who's a bit of a mentor and does a lot of work in deliverance. And as we were doing the inventory for this person, you know, one of the things that he was teaching me about was what he called double trauma, how emotional wounds often become portals for demonic possession, you know, or whatever you want to call it, demonization is more biblical language. And he called it a double trauma because he said there's the original trauma. And again, we were not talking about race at all. We were talking about, in this case, sexual assault. There's the original trauma of whatever it is, death, tragedy, assault, followed by a secondary trauma where a demonic being attaches to that pain whether it's anger, whether it's hurt, whether it's shame, attaches to it and begins to take that as, in Ephesians language, a foothold yes. to begin to kind of divide and conquer 
the inner heart of a woman or of a man. You know, so are you saying it, it's something like that double trauma? There's the trauma, whether you're up close to it or from a distance, whether it's your own ethnos or one from your nation. And then there's that double trauma where the enemy comes after these places of emotional vulnerability because of suffering, pain, injustice, abuse. It's the double trauma. I just thought that was interesting language of double trauma. It's double trauma at the, we could even take this to, to several levels of trauma, but it's at the individual level. Yes. Then it begins to manifest at the corporate mm-hmm. communal level. I believe whole people groups can, can, can battle specific demonic uh, entities and forces as it relates to, to corporate trauma. Then we can go to localized and regional traumas Wow. From trauma, from historical events, traumatic yes. events that yes. opened up spiritual. If if a spiritual trauma portal can open at a human level, it can also open at a geographic level. Yes. And so, and that's all over Scripture. That there are whatever you want to call them, principalities, powers, Elohim, mm-hmm. in Hebrew, demonic beings that have power and authority over geographic places. Well, it, it's you know, true. you have the obvious example of the Prince of Persia and Daniel, but there are more examples. You have Deuteronomy 6, like we don't think that way, but there are demonic beings that have been granted a modicum of authority over, over places and arguably over, over peoples. Over places, over peoples, which is why, you know, I've often said racism is it's spiritual, it's a spirit. And most black people um, have, I, I call it a spidey sense, right? Mm-hmm. We can discern the spirit of racism. Mm-hmm. Most, most can, even if they're not uh, you know, a believer, you don't have to be churched. There are some places in America you can drive into, and my wife who's white, she gets, she can discern it so strong immediately. And it's not like some, ooh, I feel, it's like we will pull up at a gas station and just, boom, you feel it in your belly. Like, wow. okay, uh, let's just keep driving. This is not the one. You pull into a small town on a road trip or into a certain city and you can feel the spirit of the city if there's there's some of the, the residue of, of historical racism, uh, Trump trauma, which is why even the conversations and the activities around Confederate monuments mm-hmm. and um, certain streets and, and cities mm-hmm. that are named after racists from 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 the past, people who have perpetuated uh, trauma. What we don't understand is that these powers and principalities that we're talking about. That's where the real fight is. Hmm. That's the real place where things have to shift. That is not a popular thing. What you just said is that's not... the fight because because what happens is if in Birmingham, Alabama, or Selma, where Bloody Sunday happened, every time th- this is a a really intense understanding that here in the West we've kind of lost our way in, or maybe we've never understood the way, but tribal cultures around the world um, live as though the spiritual realm is more real than the physical. Yes. But here, we, we it's the reverse, yes. right? 
So there's so much- The physical is more real than the spiritual, if it even exists. Right, exactly. We're still having that conversation. So there's right. no way we can under, get to the So meat. we look for purely physical solutions, right? natural solutions, right. yes. Now, anyone though, who has come into the faith out of witchcraft or out of Wiccan uh, religion or anybody who's um, kind of studied the occult world, they, they generally have much more of a, an understanding of how this works than the average Christian. But this should really be milk for us. It really should yes. be. But it's not taught because half the church is still trying to wrestle with, does the Holy Spirit even do stuff today? <laughs> you know, It's like, wow, there's no way we can understand this if we're still at that place in the conversation. Yeah. But I'll say this to say that, you know, that when blood... The spiritual world is empowered by covenants and by blood. So when blood is shed um, and trauma happens that violates the image of God and man, and that's what I've said that racism is. It's, yes. It's, it's, this is really interesting to me because the standard definition of racism is prejudice plus power. Mm -hmm. You define racism as hatred of the image of God in another person and you define, correct me if I'm wrong here, systemic racism as empowered hatred of the image of God in another exactly. person. So hate is behind that. Hate, and hate, the author of hate is Satan himself. So it's yes. Satanism, it's satanic. Yes. It's anti-Christ. Satan hates the image of God. He hates God. So he hates God's offspring who are bearers of his image. Mm -hmm. So Satan, gets a foothold through sin in people's lives. And he says, oh, that's a vessel that I can use. That's why he says, don't let an, a root of bitterness spring yes. up in you. Don't be angry. Because it's an opening it's an for opening. that double trauma of the yeah. hatred of the image of God in you. Yeah, so, so what happens is you can go out and be so passionate about hating racism that you start to hate police because you believe that the police are the ones empowering racism. And then you take on the very spirit that you're fighting against. Hmm. You hate the police because you believe they're responsible. And because you hate, hate is a fruit of the satanic spirit. So now he has a hold on you and you're being empowered your actions, even in the name of doing what's right on behalf of people, might actually be advancing the kingdom of darkness rather than light. Goodness, tell us a little bit about the way that you attempt to arrest this progression of you know, traumatic event, protest for justice that is then often sabotaged and thrown off its rightful trajectory toward justice by a combination of our own open wound pain and the enemy and other people's agendas and, and somehow a very good thing is now on an, another trajectory. Tell us about how you attempt to arrest that and keep, keep a protest on the right trajectory toward justice and righteousness through peacemaking. Yes. So. So understanding that, again, there are ancient dark powers that 
particularly set up thrones or, or set up almost like governmental systems mm-hmm. over cities, especially places where great trauma has happened. Right. Historical places. That's where I was bringing Selma into the conversation. Yes. Alabama in general, in general, Mississippi, you know, some of these places in the deep south. St. Louis is a city that I believe is one because of legislation that happened that opened a gate or a portal for empowered mm-hmm. hatred for the image of God mm-hmm. through the Dred Scott decision. Legislation in history. So even if laws change without repentance for for opening that gate, um, people die die off, meaning generations die off, but the spiritual powers that influenced the legislation 100 years ago, 200 years ago, those spiritual or, powers- Or less long ago, or in some cases, you know? Yeah, or, you know, 10 years ago. Yes. Uh, those things remain in power and remain in, inf- continue to have influence in the places of power, the, the hall- corridors of power. Mm-hmm. So- what we do is, I believe that, you know, in the book of Matthew, Matthew 16, Peter has a revelation of who Christ is. And this is after Jesus has asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And he gets a revelation that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and, and then Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church or my ecclesia, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is the, ecle- the ecclesia, ecclesia, different people say it different ways. That's a governmental term. It's a convening body, like mm-hmm. a legislative body. And the Lord is basically saying, I'm going to build a group of people who understand my authority, the key of authority that I hold and the victory that I hold over the over the over hell over Hades, like right. I am victor over the dark powers of this age, and I will I will raise up a people who understand who I am, and then operate in the ability to open and shut spiritual doors mm-hmm. of wickedness or or righteousness. Mm-hmm. They can shut doors of of wickedness and open doors of righteousness. That's why it says. He, he could have said anything, but he said the gates mm-hmm. of Hades. Yeah, I, the image is like we're on the offensive. We're on the offensive. I want you with, with understanding of my heart that I am just and I hate wickedness. I hate wickedness. I am justice itself. That is, who my, that is my name. That is who I am. Isaiah 42 describes him as the just one who will bring justice. You know, I often hear people say, well, all right, we've prayed, now we want to do something. And I'm going, you, it, in that phrase, it's an indication that you have no idea what happens when we pray with the keys of authority. Yeah, some of that's reacting against people that just kind of want to pray and not do anything. Right. But you can have that pendulum, and that's a rightful thing to push yes. back on, but that pendulum can go to the opposite degree right. where people really don't think that prayer is doing anything. They don't think it's doing anything because they've never experienced or seen it's the natural yeah you, you, we've we've not seen or or operated in the realm of understanding in the spirit to what 
to where we're actually engaging with powers and principalities. You know, I've been that line that you just quoted from Matthew, you know, the gates of Hades or hell will not prevail against me. I've been there a number of years ago, Caesarea Philippi, and uh, where Jesus said that was on this overlook of this Greco-Roman town to the north of Israel, Caesarea Philippi, that was a literally a bastion of paganism, like up against this cliffside, mm-hmm. built into this cliffside were all these temples to Zeus and Caesar and Poseidon. And there it was famous because it was called the Gates of Hades. There was a cave there, I've been in this cave, and it was a temple of sorts to the god Pan, which mm. is like crazy because where like Peter Pan comes from and stuff like this. This was a, a kind of hyper-sexualized goat god of God in the ancient world. And there was a spring there and wow. once a year, and they believed that this spring was the portal to the underworld and they would sacrifice goats at this spring wow. and they would be sucked under. And they believed that they were being kind of swallowed up by Hades. So Jesus is saying like the gates of Hades, he's standing in front of what was called the gates of Hades when wow. he said that. And Amazing. it's a, most, you know, as I understand it, most scholars think he's referring just to kind of Greco-Roman paganism. Right. And by, by the third century, Century, this entire wall of temples, including the gates of Hades, had been completely shut down wow. because this entire city had basically come to faith in Jesus. Paganism had been abolished by a people with no political power, no military might, wow. nothing, by a marginalized, tiny little sect on the edge of empire that shut down paganism. And by the end of the fourth century, many of these temples had been converted into churches. <laughs> wow. You know, and you're like, wow. wow. I mean, like the such is the power of prayer, you know? Yeah, and, it, and it's amazing how Jesus, when he speaks, he speaks, he's speaking truth to the context of his generation, but then to the generations to come. Yes. He's speaking prophetically of what's physically coming to the gates of Hades, and he's speaking covenantally to, to sons and daughters in our age of the spiritual reality mm-hmm. of that very same reality happening in our day and in our time, in our context. Yes. And that's what's amazing about when, when we look at scripture and we can begin to say, okay, we're, God is speaking on multiple dimensions. And so some of our theological arguments are around the fact that we're not seeing it. It's almost like, I believe the word is tetratic. Uh, you know, Jerusalem is built, it's a city that's built upon on multiple generations they don't really raise or demolish buildings they mm-hmm. it's one century and another century yes. and another century like an archaeological tell almost yeah. Archeologi- archaeologically and, and it's almost like the word of god is that way too because it's speaking on multiple levels yeah of of what god is establishing but i say that to say that you know in that same passage it goes on to say what it, what will be bound on earth will be bound in yes. heaven. Mm-hmm. What will be loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. Like God literally gives us the key of authority. And you know, some of that's talking about a theological binding, but some of it is also, and some of it's been abused in certain like um, streams of, of, of church culture as well. I bind this and I bind that. And we, we don't even know what we're really talking about, mm-hmm. but there is a real dimension of, the spiritual activity that happens in a city, trauma happens, uh, you know, a, a protest happens, a shooting happens, a death happens, blood is shed, demons are empowered. 
through the shedding of blood, through the shedding and the of blood, of covenants, and then a, a murderous or a violent or lawless spirit gets released upon a whole city, and now Satan, who is looking for a stronghold, finds thousands or maybe tens of thousands of people that are angry, and it's like that's the entrance that I needed. Boom, lawlessness increases, homicide rates skyrocket. Crazy things are happening. People are being attacked. The police are overwhelmed. Everybody's angry at the police. So now the police are defunded, so they can't do anything anyway. Yeah, I mean, which I know that's controversial, but I'm here to tell you it's the truth. What happens is all all legislation, meaning governance, not just government, but all governance in the spirit, the obstacles to governance are now removed and it's just full-on disobedience, which is Satanism. That's satanic. That's what Satan does. He, he's we're, those who follow Satan are called, or even when we were in sin, we were called sons of disobedience. Hmm. And so, so um, to bring back obedience, the Lord says, "I'm raising up my sons and daughters, who will be called the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, where there's no shalom." And, and the lack of shalom can be the presence or, or the, the absence of justice is a lack of yes. shalom. Yes. Because shalom is completeness, it's wholeness. But shalom is also, uh, it, it, it's also the governing, a governing manifestation, a physical manifestation of the presence of God, mm-hmm. the person of peace. Mm-hmm. And Isaiah uh, prophesied, he said, of the increase of his, uh, the government in Isaiah 9, the, the child that would be born, the government would be upon his shoulders. Mm-hmm. So governance is upon him. And of the increase of his government and of peace, yes, there shall be no end. And peace in biblical theology is not just the absence of conflict. So peacemaking isn't like, hey, let's just stop yelling at each other and no. all get along and sing kumbaya. It's the as it should be-ness. The as it should be. Of the kingdom. It is. It's shalom. It's mm-hmm. as God intendedness, that peace, that rightness, that as it should be-ness. And so then ironically, peace is violent. Yes. Romans 16, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath his feet. This is so hard for us to, to wrap our minds around. I know. How's, how's the God of peace wielding? It, peace is a weapon. Even Dr. King said that. He says, we're going to wield the weapon of love. The we, Our weapon, we are fighting yes. with a powerful weapon, and it's called and love. And his famous line, you know, hate can't drive out hate. Only, Only love like, can do that. Right, right, exactly. So, so, so here we go into this. It's almost like I'm fighting. What we're fighting to do is to recover that revelation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's easy and it's fun to, to put on our, our social media on, you know, Dr. King Day, you know, on MLK Day. Right. Everybody's putting these things up, but in, prax- in, in, in practice, what does that really look like? Mm-hmm. And it, there's a, I think he understood the supernatural power of peace. And it, we're in an age right now where the, the sentiment is, well, We've tried peace. That's yeah, it's not, not politically way. correct to even really talk about it right yeah. now. Yeah, it's let's let's. It, there's a moment for peace, but this is not that moment. Well, there's a strong yeah. argument from a lot of people right now that basically says 
what Dr. King tried didn't work. Right. So now we got to which is which go is, another direction. Which is ex- I mean how I'm you do I'm sure you run into this all the time. Every day. I do in Portland a lot. Every know? day. It's a rejection of the person of Christ. He is peace. It's it's saying your way didn't work and so let's do it our way. Which is not going to work. Yeah. Which hasn't worked. Yeah. And so it's an indication that there's something about peace. Our definition of peace is a lower definition. Hmm. The peace that you reject is a definition of peace that reflects human understanding, human thought. Is that not. your, you know, kind of the difference between peace keeping and peace making? Yeah, there, there is a, there's a, 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 a very significant uh, distinction between peacekeeping. And I think that's what people are bucking up against yes. when they say, well, it's not time for... Don't disturb no, the status quo. Yeah, no. Let's just all kind of chill out. No, peacekeeping is not, is, is ultimately powerless. Yes. Okay. Even, even law enforcement, all they, they're peacekeepers, not peacemakers. They try to keep the peace according to what they've been delegated with authority to do. Peace according to what the law defines as peace is not doing this physical action. Well, we already know that legislating uh, certain actions has never worked. If it did, there would be no thing, no such thing as law enforcement or mm-hmm. crime fighting. Mm-hmm. There'd be no crime if everybody just immediately fell in line with what has been right. legislated to keep peace. But you're saying that's peacekeeping. That's peacekeeping. But so our peace, call is to peace yes. making. So our call is to peace making, which means we come in where there has been no peace as peacemakers, wielding the authority that we've been given by the Prince of Peace himself, who rules the nations, who's king and judge of the nations, who literally rules in, in, the, in the millennial uh, reality and expression of it from a city called Jerusalem, yes. Jerusalem. I mean, the city of peace, which happens to be the most controversial city on earth mm-hmm. that currently seems like the opposite of where peace would rule and reign. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes the place of your greatest resistance is the place of your greatest calling. Because hmm. the enemy comes against us right at the center of God's call center. on us. Exactly. So God has called us to come in and he says, the peace that I give you is not as the world gives. Peace, peace I give to you, peace I leave with you, but not as the world gives. So the first place of peace is that we arrest the disruption in our hearts. The morning that I felt, the anger that I felt after the Floyd, Floyd uh, video, mm-hmm. I said, God, I cannot sleep until you give me access to the peace that, that the world cannot give me. I, something, I need something above the natural. In my natural self, as a black man, I will go out and I will burn something down or kill somebody. Just to be frank, I was that mad. I was ready, I was ready to go tear something up or somebody. Mm-hmm. I said, Lord, I do not want Satan to get a stronghold in my life. I cried all night. I, I said, Lord, 
you have to give me your shalom, not as the world gives. Calm the disruption inside of me. And he did. Over the course of about two days. Hmm. Over the course of two days, I felt my blood, my heart rate slow down, and I entered into a place of peace. And, and everything in me wanted to respond when my temperature, when my temper was hot. Yes. And that's the problem. Well, let me post this and just say this about white people. Let me post this and say this about police. Let me go out and say this or do this. Let me organize this protest while I'm hot. I think that's the great error. And, and for those that don't know you, it's not like after you calmed down, you just decided to watch a new Netflix series. Like you are on the streets. I was introduced to you a week after George Floyd's murder by my wife, actually, who started watching videos of you online. And I later started listening to your podcasts and listening to you teach, but I was captivated these long form videos of you like in the middle of riots, in the middle of clashes between protesters and police. I mean, mayhem around you, full on violence around you, actual fire around you. And you're there praying with people, calm, non-anxious, right in the middle of it. Like you intentionally interjected yourself right into the midst yeah. of the pandemonium, you know, sure. um, to function as a peacemaker. So like you're, I just want to clarify for those that don't know you or follow your work, you're not saying I just calmed down and then I relaxed and no, what, said a nice prayer before I went to bed. Like you went to the street. Yeah, because what happens is if you respond, there's a difference between a reaction and a response. Yes. Most people regret their first reaction to most things. Hmm. In a conversation, if we get in a heated exchange right now, yeah. if I don't have self-control, I may say something out of the passion of my initial reaction to something you say that offends me, that later after this podcast, after this conversation, I call you and I have to apologize for. Mm. Man, that wasn't me, man. Yeah. I wasn't thinking, I just, I moved out of my own response, out of my, out of my emotion. But a response is after I've arrested my initial- the flesh. Flesh. Yep. Or the enemy and his overtures in my heart. Yeah, so then what happens is I'm, I'm at peace and now I can say, now what, what do you want me to make? Hmm. What do you want me to do? You know, I care a lot about the contemplative tradition and there's a saying in the contemplative tradition I love that the opposite of contemplation, because a lot of people criticize the contemplative tradition, like you just want to sit around and hmm. have silent prayer of love right. for God all day long <laughs> and not do anything. But the saying is the opposite of contemplation isn't action, it's reaction. So the opposite of a contemplative, prayerful life of quiet and peace isn't activity, it's reactivity. Mm -hmm. You know, that actually contemplatives, some of them are the most active people you've ever met, but it comes from a very different place. It comes from a place of rest. Yeah. It and, and in the place of rest, we can access the shalom of God, which is, which is, which is uh, the substance of that is love. Yeah. Because that's who he is, what he is, and the substance of who he is. So when we're motivated out of a reaction in our flesh, we're not motivated by love. We're not compelled by love. The apostle says, we are compelled hmm. to preach the gospel. Love, love is forcing me. I have no choice. 
Like I, I cannot breathe. It's just, I'm compelled to breathe. And so I was compelled into the streets. You, it, prayer does not keep me from action. Prayer is, prayer is the action. And on top of it, on top of it, the more my emotions align with God in the, in the rest, the rest of God, the, the more active I am compelled to be, it drives me into the place where I'm throwing my life into the, into the conflict, into the place where I'm being tear gassed, mm-hmm. even though the police don't know that I'm not out there attacking them. Yes. I'm, I'm with those who and are And you were being, telling me, sorry, people are pulling guns on you. I mean, you're literally were risking pull, I, your life. I had, I had guns pulled. I got tear gassed many times, couldn't breathe the whole deal, all because there, there comes a place where God says, he says, I looked for one, I looked for a man who would stand in the gap hmm. and build up a hedge on behalf of the land so that I would not destroy it. And, it, and, and in Ezekiel um, about 13 and Ezekiel 33, he says, the prerequisite, the, the, the precursor to that passage, he says, the people have committed oppression, bribery, injustice. God is, God is, is grieving over the, the existence of legitimate oppression in the land. And he says, I looked for somebody who would go and stand in the gap between what, what is and what has been and what I've always desired and longed for it to be. Yeah. But I couldn't find anybody. So what he did was he worked salvation through his own right arm and his, his son Jesus comes and stands in the gap between heaven and earth and right and wrong and injustice and sin, you know, all these things. And he builds up a, a, a hedge, but, but in the sense, there's still the breach that needs to be repaired on earth. And he says, I'll raise up peacemakers, sons and daughters. They'll go to the gap and they may even die in the gap like every apostle. Yeah. They may die there. They'll throw, they'll love not their lives unto death. And the proof of their love for their neighbor is that there is no greater love than to lay down their life for a friend. Mm-hmm. But you've not resisted to bloodshed is what Second Corinthians says. Everybody's like, resist, resist, resist. But it's like, have you resisted to the point of death? Yeah, what they mean is tweet, tweet, tweet. <laughs> yeah, resist, be a, be a, 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 a armchair commentator on and judge how this community is resisting or not resisting and uh, co- color commentate from the sidelines at no risk to you. Um, or go to the street a couple of times and yell and then come back and feel like you've really advanced the cause of justice in the earth because you yelled in the street. I mean, or come to a table and get offended and then leave the table and don't go back because that's not a safe space for you. And surround yourself in echo chambers of people who believe exactly what you believe, but don't do the hard work. Don't, don't, don't really be in covenant with people who voted differently than you, who might even say stuff that's really painful and be really, really ignorant because, you know, it's not my responsibility to teach these uneducated folk. That's not Christ-like. Yeah. 
Christ says, no, love is patient. It's kind. It's gentle. It's not envious. It's not proud. It forbears. It hopes all things. It believes all things. Hmm. I believe here as believers, we've, we've lost the way of love or, or we've not known it. Yeah. And my, my father-in-law, who's a, a really uh, a profound, profoundly wise man, but he's a white man because I'm married to a white woman. And in some communities, that immediately causes me to lose my black card. Yeah. Yeah, you fight for justice, but you married a white woman, so... I actually think I have a certain measure of authority uh, because we've had we're in covenant. I'm married to the to the white evangelical conservative ideology that people hate. I'm not saying that's my wife's ideology. I'm just trying to say that, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, by proximity, that, that's you're... by proximity, and. That means some of the things that even make me cringe, I have no choice but to stay in covenant and to press through and find and learn the way of love, even if it feels so opposite my flesh. And so our responsibility is humility hmm. because what my, what my father-in-law, a southern I mean, country, back, back country, mountain man. Um, when me and my wife, before we got married, he came to me and he said, hey, I never in a million years would have thought that my, my daughter would bring home a black man. And he says, I'm struggling. This is when me and my wife are dating. Because she's, there's like white people who grow up around black people. And then there's like white people, white people. <laughs> <laughs> And she was like, as white as white gets. And, and I didn't, I'm not the guy I didn't sit out and go, yeah, I'm going to, you know, make good money and go find me a white woman. No, that was not it at all. It was a, a shock to me. I mean, we, we were like polar opposites on so many levels. And yet God brought us together. And, and my, my father-in-law comes to me and he goes, son, or not son, but he goes, I never in a million years would have thought that my daughter would bring a, a black man home. I can tell this relationship's getting serious, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'm struggling. He goes, I, I don't like it. He says, kind of makes my skin crawl. I'm sitting here like, oh my gosh. He says, but I also fear God. And he said, I need you to pray for me. I was so shocked. I was stunned. And he says, I, I said, okay, I will, I will. <laughs> what an odd prayer request. I know, I was like, I, was like <laughs> I will. And then he says, no, I mean now. And he grabs my hand and he bows his head. And I'm like, uh, I guess I'm supposed to pray for this man now. So I can't remember what I stumbled out. I'm sure it was awkward and, you know, powerless. I don't know. But I just know that eventually we kept dating. and um, Finally, we get to the wedding day. And he stands up at the wedding and he said, he said in this small North Carolina town where they, the church, the only church that we knew of that would allow us to have a, an interracial wedding in the town. Goodness. This is 2005. Oh my gosh. We're in this church and he says, he stands up during the wedding and he says, I just want to say a few things. 
He says, I know we're making history today. And he says, I know that for this region, Western North Carolina, he says, I know there's a lot of people that don't like the fact that I'm giving my daughter away to a black man. And he says, but I want to say there is no other, no greater choice for my daughter that I would ever choose than to give her away to this man. He says, on this day, this man has become my son. He is my son. He says, you are my son. And he says, and if anybody has a problem with it, <laughs> you got to go through me. You know? <laughs> but it was so powerful. And last summer after George Floyd, he and I did a, a, a Facebook Live and uh, wow. we're talking and he, we shared that story. And he said the most profound thing. He said, without humility, there can be no peace. Hmm. He said, without humility, there can be no peace. And I've, I've begun to think about that. And when I think of peacemaking, uh, the peacemaking anointing to go into places of conflict where there is no shalom. Mm -hmm. And you have two people, as in your example, that are worlds apart worlds and don't apart. even have a desire to come together. No, no. There's something about being willing to go to the lowest place and, and, and to get vulnerable. If it's on the street, I'm making myself vulnerable by throwing myself in and saying, by all means or any means necessary, even if it, even if it takes death, I want to release the peace of God in this atmosphere. And my presence is shifting. Just being present, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, being present in conflict is releasing peace, is releasing shalom. But if it's at the relational level, the way to, to, to get to peace is to get to the table and to be willing to, like my father-in-law, confess, get vulnerable. Even, I mean, I could have gotten offended when he said, this makes my skin crawl, and at that moment, shut the door on the, the making of peace that needed to be made hmm. in his bloodline and my bloodline in that region of Western North Carolina, where so many people carried ideologies that were that were opposed to who I am and 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 oppressive, I had one opportunity right there to get. Oh, I can't believe he just said that the thought of me marrying his daughter offends him. I ain't got time for for this. What am I doing anyway? Let me go marry to marry a black woman. There's a shortage of good black men anyway. <laughs> like I could I could have gone that direction right then, but I had to make a choice. He was willing to become vulnerable enough with me hmm. to confess something in hopes that the peacemaker would give him a peace about a situation where he had no peace. And in the same way, I had to make a choice, as awkward and uncomfortable as it was, to be able to, to yield to his request and genuinely ask that God would do something in his heart, and God did. And now, me and my wife have the privilege of walking out reconciliation and walking in authority as peacemakers in cities around the nation. And that means making peace either in moments of crisis and conflict, clashes, violence, civil unrest, or having the, the constitution, this is, this is the key. A lot of people can turn over tables but don't possess the, the fruit of the spirit, the self-control, the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Yes to sit in a, in, a, in a meeting with people who have wildly or radically different views 
on some of these most uh, nuanced, some of these nuanced issues. That touch at the core of your humanity. That touch at the core of your humanity. And these are not some fringe things about taxation policy or whatever that right. we get riled up about that stuff, but that doesn't touch on who I am as a person. Dr. King and that whole generation, he gets the credit all the time, but there were so many unknowns, so many housewives, janitors, uh, people who will never be remembered in Black History Month celebrations who possessed an internal peace when everything around them mm. was even far worse than things are today. I think that's also the mistake that sometimes we make as a generation. We assume that like almost we're the, like everything going on today is just so far, like nothing has changed. And that's a lie from the enemy. Things have changed, but there's still a ton of work to be done. Mm -hmm. But the, the previous generations, I think, have navigated the issues far greater in a, in a far healthier way than we have mm -hmm. because they access shalom. With the peace, with the patience. Even, you know, the Jesus story that a lot of social activists love to point to him turning over the tables, but one very obvious but missed insight to that story is that happened at the end of Jesus' ministry. And most scholars argue it was a deliberate act. He knew it would get him killed. So that's what got him arrested. It's what got him on the sham trial and eventually what got him executed. And most likely Jesus knew that it would have that effect. And he did it as deliberate prophetic theater is, is too cheap of a way to say it. He knew it would get him killed. But what people don't realize is he'd been going to that temple since at least he was 12 years old. We have that wow. story. He was in that same temple with those same money changers since he was a middle school boy, mm -hmm. every single time growing up and aware. So this was not like a fit of rage that he flew into because he happened to see injustice happening before him. Right. This was a deliberate, calculated act of judgment on a corrupt temple as the embodiment of the judge himself yes. that he'd been building up to over a lifetime. So mm -hmm. I, I, it was a measured act. It wasn't a, a fit of rage. It yeah, was it, a measured act of deliberate anger done in love as judgment on corruption in the temple that he knew would cost him his life, and it I, did. I think that's inc incredible and true. And it bore, that's the key, is righteous indignation will bear the fruits of righteousness. Mm -hmm. The peaceable fruits of righteousness, the fruits of the spirit. Yeah, so you talk a lot about this. So a bit, uh, an entire section of my book is about the New Testament concepts or the categories of the flesh and the spirit. Because mm -hmm. I think that this is a overgeneralization, but for a, a large swath of my generation and kind of you know a decade or two either side of me, those concepts have been almost entirely lost. I mean, the flesh is not language you hear the average, even Christian millennial utilize, especially mm -hmm. we grew up in a culture of kind of be true to yourself and you do you mm -hmm. and speak your truth and follow your heart yeah. and don't let anybody tell you how to be you or whatever. So this concept of a flesh, you know, yeah. it's like not even really in our paradigm, no. our worldview, much less the spirit. But there's this constant running theme in the New Testament of the flesh mm -hmm. versus the spirit. And Paul writes a lot about the, the, the byproduct of the flesh, anger, hate, discord, sensuality, sex, and then the fruits of the spirit, love. Sure joy, peace, patience. And 
what I'm hearing you say is you can discern whether or not a genuine good activist movement is rooted in the flesh or rooted in the spirit by what the fruits of it are. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Absolutely. What does it produce in the leaders of it or the participants of it? And what does it produce in those that the movement is targeting? So Jesus goes to great lengths to establish for us and model for us that he is as concerned about our enemies as he is about us. That's not popular. No. When, when George Floyd was killed and the trial happened for Officer Chauvin and a conviction came down that he's guilty, we should rejoice that, that justice and we, we should hope that true justice is being done and rejoice that he was found guilty, but only within measure. Because I believe Bishop T.D. Jake said, nobody won. Yeah. Nobody wins. Officer Chauvin getting convicted doesn't bring George Floyd back. Furthermore, now somebody else's life his life, Officer Chauvin's life, is over, essentially. Now some of you, well, he deserved it. He took, he took, took his life. That, that's, that's not what G- Jesus did not craft and create Officer Chauvin. He didn't craft and create George Floyd to be killed and for his life to be cut short. That, that probably wasn't the highest intent in God's heart. So he weeps and he's angry, you know. He hates murder, right? Mm-hmm. But on the other side, he, he, Officer Chauvin is uniquely and wonderfully made, beautifully and wonderfully made in the eyes of the Lord. And Jesus died for him too. So he weeps. And so the Bible, uh, I, I, there's a passage of scripture that literally says um, not to rejoice when your enemy falls. So Jesus goes to, to great lengths to establish that we that we we bless our enemies right and he also desires that we operate in the beatitudes you know in with the mm-hmm. with the with the constitution of of charity with mercy with long suffering how we do what we do is how, just as important as what how we do. We do you, you can say the Ends right Ends and means. Exactly. You can be you can be right but in the wrong spirit and so then the, you're all the end wrong. is justice and equality mm-hmm. and and anti racism, but the means for us has gotta be the way of Jesus. Yeah. It's gotta be the way of the spirit, the way of love and joy and peace. It's gotta be peacemaking, it's gotta be humility. Is that what it's gotta be self suffering, sacrificial love? It, it, it has to be. And you know that if you're engaged in these conversations and the more you engage, the shorter tempered you're becoming, the more irritable, the more depressed, the more uh you're losing sleep, the more anxiety you feel, feel. Some of the original Ferguson activists who were leading the charge and Black Lives Matter really gained its legs through Ferguson. 
Some of those people are no longer with us. Suicidal. People who were so disrupted on the inside, so overwhelmed and consumed with conversations about justice and equality that you wouldn't even recognize them today. Uh, people who were once joyful and peaceful, their whole outlook on life is negative and hopeless. Um, people who don't see an end, they don't see, they, you know, um, who, who have lost covenantal relationships like friendships for life. Mm-hmm. People who have left uh, the faith altogether who don't, who are turning atheistic or now embracing ancestral religions and, and practices and all these different things. Um, you have to look at that. Yeah. And furthermore, when you say, you know, well, I turned over the tables, I, I, I brought the confrontation. Well, if it's a godly confrontation, then it will produce peace, love, joy, Righteous. It may not be received. It may mm-hmm. feel wounding at first, and it may still divide. I mean, and it may Jesus still did that, and people killed him for it. Right. Exactly. You it, know, it, it's not. But at the end of the day, when you look back and measure the fruit of it, you're going to find, man, that was the pivotal moment yes. where suddenly it tipped everything towards righteousness, towards justice, towards shalom in a community. In a, in a relationship, in a policy, whatever it may be. And that's the measure. God tells us to measure. He gives us those, those, that list of the fruits of the Spirit so that we know what seed we're planting and what tree hmm. we're, we're watering. Yeah. And if we're not willing to weigh ourselves and our actions on that standard because it seems different than what we feel like doing, then we're making... We're, we're doing something opposite than what he's doing. Yeah. I'm just thinking of the name of your organization, you know, Civil Righteousness. I'm guessing that's a play on how all through the library of scripture, justice and righteousness go together. And they're not necessarily synonyms. They're mutually reinforcing concepts that need each other mm-hmm. to function in God's economy. Justice and righteousness, righteousness and justice, Sadak and Mishpat in Hebrew, all through. I mean, that Sadak and Mishpat, I just, just do yes. a word search on yes. that in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. And I mean, it's just over and over and over. It's like the dominant refrain of God, justice and righteousness. And I, what I'm hearing you say is, can't have justice without righteousness or righteousness without justice. And some people maybe from one side of the culture wars mm-hmm. need to hear more about the justice. Yeah. And other side, maybe from the Portlands of the world need to hear more about the righteousness. And we, we need both. Is that, is that what I'm hearing you say? Absolutely. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's currency. It's like a coin. And you have to have both sides of the coin to have the currency or else there's no exchange. Yeah. There, no, there, there's no transaction. Hmm. Nothing ever happens. And so, um, and that's what's hard because the righteousness really hones in on the internals and the, the justice really hones in on the externals. And when you think, it's interesting, and I believe Jeremiah 32, Jesus is, is described as Yahweh Sidkenu, Sidkenu, the the Lord, our righteousness. Mm -hmm. And then in Jeremiah 33, you see 
not the person Yahweh Sikhanu. You see the place called Yahweh Sikhanu. Jerusalem is called the Lord our righteousness. So a person becomes the place. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, what this means is that when the person of Jesus, the Lord our righteousness, rules and reigns, and we are in right alignment with him, and we he has become our righteousness. It's not a righteousness according to our own works, which is kind of what we see the justice movement doing is emphasizing, well, you need to do this, you need to say this, you need to be this, you need to uh, advocate for this. And it's like, we're looking for the place, we're looking for the place to become righteous through the works that we're doing to work for justice, right? But God is God says, no, I will I've become your righteousness. I will transform you into, into operating in and, and advocating for my standard of righteousness personally in your own life. Then every place that I assign to you, every place that you live, then you're to work and sow and throw your life into, into seeing the place become the righteousness of Christ as mm-hmm. well that the place would begin to look mm-hmm. like the righteousness that I'm working in you from inward mm-hmm. in internal transformation that leads to external reformation mm-hmm. that we would walk as reformers in every arena that we go into to see and work for whatever measure of justice and righteousness that can be attained this side mm-hmm. of eternity um, in the now we should be the most vocal for justice. Mm-hmm. We should be the most vocal as well. We can't do that at the expense of checking moral righteousness at the door or biblical righteousness and right thinking, right alignment, right motive, purity, holiness. We can't check that at the door and compromise it for the sake of accomplishing some paper-thin form of justice, um, some temporal justice. True transformation true justice work led by the believer should in its immaturity be a manifestation of the righteousness of Christ in the physical space or else I, I feel like it's cruelty, you know? Yeah. It, it's, it's almost like saying, hey, give your life to Jesus. He'll take care of you. And then they say, how? And you're like, oh, no, just pray about it. God will do it. Yeah. When God says, no, no, no. Did you feed the poor? It's shallow. It's empty. Mm-hmm. Did you clothe me? Did you house me? We we have to do it. We can't check that at the door either. Mm-hmm. So that's the correction and the confrontation I believe that God is bringing to the church. And with civil righteousness, that's what we're working toward. There's, yeah. there's a, you can say social justice and people are like, oh yeah, we get that. And there are many different definitions. But if you say social righteousness, you're like, what? What's that? <laughs> So it's like, man, we're, why is the church not being a mouthpiece for, for, for social righteousness? So, Wow. What a gift you are. Um, for those listening, how can they follow more of your work? Or, you know, at Bridgetown, we've been following your leadership with Pray and MLK and Pray sure. Tests and all sorts of other things. How can people kind of follow along under your leadership or, or learn more about what you're doing? Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, I can personally be reached at John Tremaine on uh, on social, um, but also our organization, civilrighteousness.org. We're also on social media as Civil Righteousness. Um, and we're, you know, we're, 
we've been working to build organizational structure, but um, in the coming uh, days, months, weeks, and years, we'll be doing more content and continued, you know, trainings, teachings, and yes. most of all, mobilizing in yeah, the Yeah, the main thing you do is like, it's, yeah, it's not content development, right. though there's very much a place for that in this conversation, sure. but you're on the streets we, we doing wanna, the stuff, working in neighborhoods. You absolutely. Know? We, we want to, to, to be uh, a living, an incarnate presence. Yeah. Um, and really encourage the church, not us as an organization, but we feel like the greatest justice movement yeah. that ever began began with Jesus, and it's his people that should yes. carry the baton. Say your line about how the gospel is the truest. You said this yeah, in, the, yeah. when you were preaching yesterday at our church. You said, I think the line was, the gospel is the truest manifestation of anti-racism in the history of humanity. That's it. End quote, Jonathan Tremaine Thomas right there. (laughs) Man, what a gift. Well, thank you. You are a gift to me. You are a man of peace. My experience with you, both in just conversations like this, as well as prayer walking the city of Portland, you are a man of peace, but also of righteousness and of justice. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for saying yes to God's call in your life. And we're learning so much from you. I'm really grateful to have this time. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. What a great conversation with JT. We'll be back next week with another episode with my friend Rich Viotis from New Life Fellowship in Queens in New York City. He is a great gift to the church. If you want to go deeper, I have an entire book on this with all sorts of other ideas that is out now. It's called Live No Lies, Recognize and Resist the Three Enemies that Sabotage Your Peace. It is my attempt to explore this ancient Christian paradigm of the three enemies of the soul, the world and the flesh and the devil, but through the lens of our very secular and very sophisticated kind of cultural moment, I'm praying that it does a lot of good in your heart and in my own. You can check it out wherever books are sold. In the meantime, grace and peace. See you back here next week for our conversation with Rich. Rich.